Hope everyone's doing well out there. I am super excited. I think I only have to preach to an empty room two more weekends, and we get to get back to a little bit of uh, normal church, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Hey, I know it's been talked about in the video, and I think Greg did it in announcements as well, but please um, get online, sign up to come to one of our three worship nights that's coming up soon. I hope you're excited about weekend services starting back up, and I know it's going to be a little bit different, but at least there will be people here, some energy in the room, uh, some movement. We'll get to see each other. Really, really excited about that. So we got a lot to do today. We're in the book of Matthew, and we're going to do all of chapter 11 today. We have a lot of text to work through. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you that long, but um, I kind of want to jump into it. And it's a really, really neat chapter, and we're in a really neat section of the book of Matthew. If you haven't been with us, We've been working through this book. This is the first book of the New Testament. And again, I say this every week. I would say it's arguably the most important book of the Bible um, because it gives really a snapshot of the thesis of the entire Bible. We get to see how Jesus is the rightful king, that Jesus is the savior. We get to learn how we are to live in accordance to God's will. We get to hear a lot about the kingdom of God and a really, really fascinating book of the Bible. Last week, we were in the second half of chapter 10. It took us two weekends to do chapter 10. And what we talked about in chapter 10 is there was kind of a shift that was taking place to where it was all about Jesus teaching and healing and ministering. And then what happens in chapter 10 is he's going to start preparing his 12 disciples for them to go out. And so he kind of gives them I say a pep talk, but there are some pretty scary things that Jesus says in chapter 10 where he is preparing them for the persecution and the hard times and how they're going to go from town to town. And yes, they're going to see miracles and healing and lives changed, but they're also going to face rejection and they're going to face a lot of hard times ahead. And Jesus prepares them for that. But what we talked about last week is one of the most I would say one of the most important and and one of the more famous lines in the entire Bible when Jesus says that we have to lose our lives in order to find it, right? That we have to give up what we want for what God wants, and then we find out what it means to truly live. That's what we talked about last week. We have to lose our lives in order to really understand what it means to live, This week in chapter 11, we're going to do all of chapter 11. Jesus is going to end talking about a yoke. Now, if you're from the Midwest or the North, like me and my wife are, you've probably never seen a lot of yokes on animals, but Jesus uses this reference to to like if you were to take two ox and put a yoke on them, it's this burden, it's this responsibility, this weight we have to pull. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, my yoke, my burden, right, my responsibilities are good. They work. Okay? They're, they're easy. Now I'll explain easy at the end of this. It's not easy in the way we think of it. But Jesus is going to talk about his responsibility, his yoke, versus what the world tries to put on us or what religion tries to put on us. Okay, That's where we're going to hang out at the end of this. I know I went fast through that. That's okay. We'll take our time a little bit once we get into the text. So if you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 11, so we're not quite halfway through the book of Matthew yet. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, it is extremely useful. Click on service times and sermon notes. You got everything there for you, all the scripture and all the notes. If you're watching online, if you have a computer, you can actually click on our website under the video and all the sermon notes are there. So all the notes that you need are right there. You can watch and go back and look at the notes Got everything uh, uh, set up for you and um, ready to go, okay? So I'm going to pray. We're getting into chapter 11 of the book of Matthew. Again, about 90% of this is straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, and um, we'll see where where, where the word takes us today, okay? Father, we love you, God. Lord, it is extremely encouraging to see some movement, God. It's extremely encouraging to see kind of a light at the end of this tunnel, God, to see that not only our church, but other churches in our community are are opening up. God, we pray that you bless those churches. Pray that you keep your hand on this church, God. Pray, Lord, that as we move forward, the light, the truth, your word, God, 
can penetrate the hearts of, of men and women, Lord, and change their lives, God. Lord, keep your hand on the nonprofits in our town. Keep your hand on our government, Lord. Keep your hand on our first responders and our police department and sheriff's department, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Keep your hand on us as we study your word today. And Lord, let it really just get a hold of us, God, and change the way we think and act. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get into chapter 11. I'll read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down, okay? It says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them. He's replying to John's disciples. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So another shift has taken place. We've seen kind of a shift from Jesus doing all the work to now the disciples doing all the work. And at this point in Matthew, two different things are going to start happening. First is we're going to see the opposition of the Pharisees. Those are the religious people that, that hated Jesus. We're going to see their opposition ramp up. They're going to be much more vocal about how much they hate Jesus. That's the first thing that's going to happen. The second thing that's going to happen is our view of Jesus is going to change. Now, there are many different facets of Jesus. He's many different things to us. What we've been learning in the previous 10 chapters is that Jesus is the son of David, which means he's the rightful king, right? The rightful heir to the throne. What we're gonna be focusing kind of from here on out is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. That simply means that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, that he is going to be the atonement, the, the purchaser, if you will, for all of our redemption from all the bad things that we've done, okay? So Jesus' main goals while he was on earth was the redemption and restoration of humanity. We're gonna see more of that as we go. So after Jesus gives his disciples kind of a crash course on what to expect when they go out, right? That was basically all of chapter 10. It says he moves on from there and he starts teaching and preaching from town to town. So what happens at this point is the 12 disciples are gonna split up two by two. Jesus is gonna go his way. They're gonna try to cover as much ground as they can. And as they're doing that, Jesus is out going town to town. Some of John the Baptist's disciples catch up with Jesus and they basically say, hey, John is in prison and John is having doubts that you're the Savior. He wants us to know, are you him or should we be looking for someone else? So we learn that John the Baptist, and if you weren't here for this, John the Baptist was kind of the, the, the front runner for Jesus to come. He was the first one to come and kind of pave the way for Jesus to come. So in Matthew chapter four, we learn that John was thrown in prison by the King Herod. Now, if you've ever seen like the Passion of the Christ, uh, Herod is the same one um, that interviews Jesus before he goes on to be executed, right? He's having kind of this party and he's real crazy looking and he was very hedonistic. It's the same Herod that, that had imprisoned John the Baptist. So John the Baptist knew that he was about to die, right? In fact, he was about to lose his head and he wanted to be reassured. This sounds crazy. John didn't mind losing his life. He just wanted to make sure that he was losing his life for the right person. He was, he was nervous. He was, he was a little bit of afraid, right? As, as all of us would be in a situation like this. So as John's disciples came to Jesus and asked him, you're it, right? Jesus assured them, yes, he was the one. He was the savior. And Jesus said, go back and tell John that all the things that were prophesied in the Old Testament are starting to take place. The blind see, the lame walk, 
Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor hear the good news about the kingdom of God. Go tell John. And basically what Jesus was saying is the mission of the Savior was unfolding. Jesus was there healing. He was there liberating through salvation, and he was there bringing justice to the oppressed. Go back and tell John he's dying for the right guy. So here's the thing, though. Many people, even though Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies that basically anyone should have known in this culture, the reason why most people didn't see Jesus for who he was is they were not looking for a biblical savior. They were not looking for the savior of the Old Testament. Though the Jewish people, and I'm not picking on the Jewish people this time, though they had access to the Old Testament, though they had been studying it their entire lives, they had manufactured in their mind a pre, like this, this, uh, this, this uh, preconception of a savior that they wanted. Not, not the one of the Bible, but one that fit their desires and their needs. So when the real savior came, it was a stumbling block for the people. Now, it's very similar to today. Just like in Matthew's time, we do the exact same thing today. What we tend to do is we want a savior that is suited to our preferences. We want a Jesus that affirms what we already believe. We don't objectively seek out the God of the Bible. We manufacture a God in our image versus us trying to mold into the image of the God of the Bible. We still do this today, okay? Next part. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and violent have been, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. So Jesus turns around to the crowd after John's disciples leave. Maybe he sensed that the crowd was, was thinking poorly of John. Wow, John doubted, right? Maybe they're starting to talk about John or grumble about John. So Jesus turns around to the crowd and he gives a tribute to this, this wonderful man. And so John was a contradiction to the religion that had become tainted over centuries. John was truly a follower of God, unlike the religious community that was kind of self-serving. And the reason why John drew massive amounts of people, they think he drew somewhere in the six figures of people coming to hear his message and to get baptized, 100,000 people plus, right? It's a mega church. The reason why he drew so many people to him is because he was genuine, because he was strong in his faith. I love what Jesus says. He wasn't wearing soft clothes. He wasn't wearing a $3,000 suit. He wasn't wearing $400 shoes. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was just a normal guy that had a powerful message. He was genuine about his faith. He wasn't about fame or fortune or like a lot of these clowns that preach the gospel nowadays, but it's really about just pursuing self and, and advertising self and getting rich on these things. That's not what John was. John's focus was to educate the people about Jesus. 
It wasn't about his looks. It wasn't about who he was. It was about who Jesus was. And that's what drew the crowds. That's what drew this massive amount of people. Not only that, he was a prophet. He was a prophet that other prophets had talked about. In Malachi chapter three, it mentions 400 years before John was born, it mentions that John was coming and that he was going to be the final prophet before the Savior comes. Now, when Jesus says, among all those born of women, none are greater than John, what he means is not that he loved John more than everyone else, but that no one in the history of humanity had a bigger responsibility than John the Baptist. And in Christianity, we often talk about David and Moses and Peter and Paul. And Jesus says, of all the responsibility I've ever given to a human, John had the greatest responsibility. He was the one that was the front runner, the forerunner for Jesus, the Messiah to come. So if he was the greatest, right? If he had the greatest responsibility, if he had the most important role, this man had doubts. Jesus talks about how wonderful of a man he is, but the people were thinking, man, John the Baptist was kind of a weirdo, right? Wore weird clothes, ate bugs, had probably long scraggly hair, yelled a lot. And then he had his doubts once he was thrown in jail. To the world's standards, they're like, this doesn't sound like a great man at all. But the thing is this, God uses a different standard than humanity does to gauge greatness. God looks past the unrefined kind of rough edges and he looks at the state of the heart. And it is the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is a fancy way of saying the pursuit of the things of God. It is the pursuit of the things of God that makes a man or a woman great in God's eyes. And so John was one of the greatest because he pursued, relentlessly pursued the things of God. He pursued holiness. He pursued the truth. So it wasn't the world standards that made John great. It wasn't how much money he had or the clothes he wore or how many hits he has on YouTube or Facebook or how many books he had written. It wasn't about any of that garbage. It was about that he relentlessly pursued God and told people about the Savior. Interesting. And then Jesus says something really strange. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Verse 12, he says that the violent have been seizing the kingdom by force. Now, verse 12 is a little tough to interpret, and you can get different interpretations on it. But more than likely what Jesus meant here is that Christ's advancing kingdom, it's moving forward, and it was going to be met by violent opposition. There would be a clashing of two different kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And as time passes, this violence and this intensity would increase. Now, there have always been waves of persecution. There have always been waves of violence against the message of Christ. But social and even physical threats continue to escalate, and they will continue even more and more so until Jesus Christ comes back, okay? So John was the last of the great biblical prophets. Verse 13 through 15. Jesus points out that John was the end cap. There was a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. And technically, John would have been the last one before the new era kind of rolls out. Jesus says John was the Elijah that was to come, which means in Malachi, when it says that Elijah is going to come, that was him. John was him. He was prophesied centuries earlier. But the question Jesus brings up is do you have ears willing to hear that? That's what Jesus says at the end of this portion that I read. Look, the prophets told us about John, that the whole Old Testament points towards these things happening. Jesus was saying, I'm the savior that John talked about, but you have to want to hear this. You have to have ears willing to listen to what the word says. And it is really in this that we find the key to being saved. The key to being saved, the key to eternal life, the key to having a relationship with God is the willingness, the want to get into the word of God, the willingness and the want to listen, to hear what God has to say to us and to follow those things. That is really the key to salvation is the willingness to have a relationship with Jesus. 
the willingness to pursue the, the, the things of God, the word of God, God himself, right? And not for selfish gain, but because we want to know him, because we want to honor our creator. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't respond. That gets us to the next part. Jesus says, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sing a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus gets a little angry in this part, right? There's a lot of rebuking in this part. And he looks at the unbelieving crowd, right? The crowd that is questioning John, they're questioning Jesus. He starts to rebuke the cities that he went to and did all these miracles and, and fulfilled what the Old Testament said right in front of the eyes of the people, and they still didn't believe. So Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, what should I compare this generation to? And Jesus's frustration starts to show because the path has been clearly laid out in front of humanity. They had the word of God. They had the prophets, which those things had come true. And then now they had God himself right in front of them, doing only what God couldn't do, and they still didn't believe. You ever heard people say, if I could just see God, I would believe in him. It's not true. People did see God face to face, and they still didn't believe in him, right? All throughout the Bible, people saw God. And they did not believe in him even after they saw. Many of them did, but many of them didn't. So whenever people use that excuse, no, no, no. It's your willingness to see God that enables you to see God. So Jesus said people are like children and they just want attention and they want others to play by their rules. I love what Jesus says there. We played a song, but you didn't dance. We did this, but you didn't cry right? Like children in the marketplace saying, you're not playing by my rules. If you don't play by my rules, I just don't want to play. That's what Jesus said that generation was like. And so the other thing he says, and I find this part very, very fascinating, and I've never picked up on this until this, this last week. Jesus reminded the people, he said, John came and John was uber serious, right? He, he didn't eat he didn't drink. Of course, he ate and he drank, but he's saying he didn't like party with people. He didn't go out and have a glass of wine. He was very, very conservative, right? John came and was extremely conservative and the people rejected him because he was not very fun, right? He's just too serious. We don't like that. We're gonna re reject that message. And then Jesus comes and he does eat and he does drink and have a glass of wine and he hangs out with bad people and tax collectors and sinners and then they say well Jesus is having a little bit too much fun right he's showing a little bit of too much grace to the wrong people and so it's fascinating Jesus says we we brought the message to you on a conservative level you didn't want that we brought the message to you on a liberal level you didn't want that what do you want the thing is, is there's no problem with the message. There was no problem with the messengers. The problem was the ones hearing the message. They did not have a desire to follow God when it got down to the core of them. So how often, guys, 
How many times have, have you heard people, and I've heard people say, well, it's because of the church that I don't do this. Well, it's because of my parents. Well, it's because that guy's too casual or that other church is too fancy. You're missing the point. The point is not the, the semantics of it. The point is not, is it liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat? That's not the point. It's the message of it. It's the gospel of it but we have to have a desire to get through all the other things to what the real point is. And we have a tendency to kind of play the blame game, don't we? Oh, it's too conservative. It's too, it's too liberal. It's too clean. It's too dirty. It's too much fun. It's not fun enough. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's interesting though. People have not changed much, have they? In all of these thousands of years that Christianity has existed, humanity is very, very similar to it was in Jesus's time. Most of us have a tendency to make excuses for why we're not committed to God. Well, just the service times don't work for me. Even though they have four on two different days, it just doesn't work for me. Well, but I have to do this. And well, I don't think I have to do that. And well, he offended me and hurt my feelings. And well, she did this. And we make all these excuses. It's always someone else's fault. We blame it on our parents. We blame it on our socioeconomic status. We blame it on the color of our skin or where we're from. And we blame everything for everyone. Here's the thing though, guys. Regardless of your environmental circumstances, whether they be from a child, and I'm not trying to take, uh, take anything away from the fact that maybe you had a rough childhood or you were taken advantage of or hurt in some way. I'm sorry for that. But if we believe in the true God, we have to believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to change. We have to believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome the environment around us. And if we don't believe that, then we don't believe in a God that has any power at all. See, at the end of the day, regardless of environmental factors, at the end of the day, we're going to have to give an account for how we lived. We're going to have to give an account for what we have done. And whenever we, you know, if we stand in front of, uh, of God one day and say, well, I had really crappy parents or I grew up in a really poor neighborhood or I was hurt, God's gonna say, but I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you me to help you overcome those things. Like the word says that you can be more than overcomers. So we will be left without an excuse at that point. At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, we are responsible for our lives. It's not President Trump's fault. It's not Barack Obama's fault. It's not some terrorist group on the other side of the world's fault. It's not the economics of my neighborhood's fault. My choices are my choices. And I have to own them and be responsible for them. And so Jesus says this, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What Jesus is saying is this, the proof is in the pudding. The ways of the world continually fail and the ways of God continually work if they're put into practice and applied. So Jesus says, I don't have anything to prove to you. If you do what I tell you to do, your lives will be fulfilling. They'll have purpose. They'll have meaning. If you don't do what I tell you to do, it's going to show, right? The fruit of that is going to come up. So Jesus assures us that the fruit of the Christian life will vindicate itself. We don't have to get on Facebook and tell everyone how terrible they are and how great Christianity is. Let our lives show how good the Christian experience is. We have nothing to prove to people who are unwilling to hear the truth. How many of you get into arguments with people in person or on social media trying to prove to them how great Christianity is? Listen, if people don't want to hear it, you have nothing to prove to them. Let your life and the fruit of your life vindicate itself. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That's what Jesus means there. So Jesus also gives a stern warning. Jesus said, woe to you, to the towns where he had performed all these miracles, but they refused to repent of their sin and believe. I didn't put this in my notes, but let me throw this out here real quick. There's a lot of these churches and a lot of these clowns that get on YouTube and make documentaries and stuff like that about all these miracles, right? And I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles. I believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But these people who go out and do miracles and they do all this stuff, and, and then there's no mention of repentance. This is the first scripture that pops into my head. There's a lot of miraculous things that happen, 
But if we do not repent for the way that we have lived, if we do not ask God to forgive us of our sins, if we do not fall at his face, right? Or, or, or fall uh, on our knees in front of him, on our face, is what I meant to say. And say, God, we have lived wrong. We can see miracles all day long, but until we repent and believe, we're not, we're not being pleasing to Jesus. So the word woe there, woe to you. The word woe can be translated to catastrophe. It says this a lot actually in the book of Revelation, that it is catastrophic if we do not repent to Jesus. So Jesus is telling the people that without repentance, they would face judgment. And no amount of good works in this life can earn us heaven. We only earn heaven by the grace of God. So we have to submit and fall down on our faces in front of God and say, we have been wrong. We give our lives to you. And if we do not do that, it is catastrophic. Woe to us. Catastrophe to us. Okay. Last part. And it's positive, right? It's been kind of hardcore till now. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying there is a better way. He also says this better way has been revealed to infants. I find that very interesting. What does that mean? Jesus's righteous anger towards people at this point turns, his, his righteous anger is towards those who are, he says, wise and intelligent. And when Jesus says that, he's kind of saying it sarcastically, right? He's saying those people who think they are so smart that they don't need God, right? They're so intelligent and they already know all the answers, right? To those people, Jesus is kind of angry at those people, right? And he's very sarcastic about those people. Like earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, I didn't come for those who are already well, I came for those who are sick. Jesus was sarcastically saying, everyone's sick, but you have to realize that you're sick in order for the doctor to help you. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's a lot of wise and intelligent people that know better and they don't need me, right? He says that sarcastically. But Jesus says, I'm appreciative for the infants, the ones who, like a child, approach Jesus and want to learn from him. They want to be closer to him. They want to submit to him and follow his ways. So listen, guys, there's nothing wrong with wisdom. That's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, true wisdom. There's nothing wrong with intelligence. There's nothing wrong with having a PhD or being very smart. But there is a line that is crossed when we believe we are too smart for God. There's a line that is crossed when we believe there is no higher power than us. Then your wisdom and your, your intelligence has actually turned into foolishness. So what it all boils down to, and Jesus says it, he says, I'm humble, right? It all boils down to humility. True intelligence, true wisdom is a person who pursues truth regardless of what they may find. My wife used to be a scientist. And any good scientist, they don't approach an experiment trying to get to a certain point necessarily. They approach the experiment, they do the things, and whatever the experiment leads them to, whatever the truth is that they find from that experiment, that is their goal, right? True wisdom, true intelligence seeks an answer, whatever the answer may be, right? And so to do that, though, takes humility. And it takes a willingness to learn, that's why Jesus continually says, you have to have ears to hear, that you have to seek the truth, and then you will find the truth. We have to be willing to look, right? Objectively seek the answers. And at the end of this part, Jesus says, your ways are not working. Your burden is heavy. 
It's too much for you to carry. Why don't you try my way? Notice this. Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to my teaching. He doesn't say, uh, uh, come to church. He doesn't say, come to dressing differently or speaking differently. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That is Jesus taking a shot at religion. That's Jesus taking a shot at the ways of the world. He says, you've tried the ways of the world. You've tried just being religious. Now he says, come to me. Come to me. Because the pursuit of religion or self will always leave us disappointed. It will leave us tired. It will leave us exhausted. So he says, try me. Try me. And if you build a relationship with me, of course, a lot of those things come with that. There comes the church. There comes giving and serving and all those things come. But first we have to come to Christ. We have to search him out. And so he says it's easy. And he says it's light. Now, what's fascinating about that statement is if you go back to chapter 10, it does not sound easy. It does not sound light. Now, what does Jesus mean that my yoke my burden, my responsibilities are easy and light. Here's the thing. We will all carry some kind of burden or responsibility in this life. All of us. But the question is, will we carry one that is within our capacity or will we carry a burden that is heavier than what we are actually designed to carry? The easy yoke of Jesus doesn't mean that it's not challenging. It doesn't mean easy in the way we think of easy. What it means, though, is that if we carry Jesus's responsibility, Jesus's ways, that we have someone to help us, we have God with us, lifting up the struggles and the hard times of life, that we can make it through. We can live in a way that we are created to live, which means at one with our, with our God, with our Creator. Is it easy in the sense that we think of easy? No, no, no. Is it light in the sense that we think of light? No, no, no. What he means is it's fulfilling. It's good. It's right. It has value. It has purpose. You get to know where you came from and why you're here. It's better. Religion will never give you those answers. The ways of the world will never give you those answers. But Jesus' burden, his responsibility, his way, will give you that fulfillment, that peace, that contentment that I think most people are genuinely looking for. So let's go backwards a little bit. I'm going to ask you some questions, okay? And then we'll end on a very positive note. Let me ask, is the fruit of our lives vindicated? To me, studying chapter 11, one of the most interesting things Jesus says, is yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Basically, my actions will speak for themselves. The fruit of my life will speak for itself. So what does that mean for us? It means this. All of us, me and all of you watching me right now, we will all gravitate towards selfishness and wanting to do things our way. All of us will. Even Paul talks about that, right? Paul says, I want to do the things of God, but at the end of the day, I mess up, right? And I do things the way I want to do them. We all fight with that flesh, that very fleshly desire to do it the way we want to do it, to look out for ourselves. The question is this, though. Has that pursuit of self, I talked about this last week a little bit. Has that pursuit of self given us the contentment and the fulfillment we want. Let me phrase it easier. Has our selfishness, has the fruit of our selfishness vindicated us? Has it, has it been apparent that our ways are doing really well, right? They're working, right? Marriages are better. Relationships are better. Finances are better. Governments are better. Has it, has it, has it been vindicated, that fruit? In a, in a greater scope, right? Not just as an individual, but let's, say, let's look at humanity. Have the ways of the world made people better? Have we gained more clarity? 
Do you think culture is more clear now than it has been in the past? Do you think we have more substance now than we've had in the past? It's almost a laughable thing to say, isn't it? You can't even watch the news nowadays without chuckling and laughing because all of it's so biased one way or the other. There's no real news out there. It's a circus. You can't hardly talk to people now and get on on any kind of deeper level because we've become so shallow. Because most of us, if we're honest, watching this right now, we average about four hours a day on our cell phones. We are not deeper people. We're not a people of greater clarity and substance. So I would argue that our fruit has not been vindicated, that the ways we have been doing it have not given us the results that we have wanted, okay? So let's say that. Let's ask the question, has our fruit been vindicated, right? So let's move on to the next stage. Let's say that our fruit has not been vindicated, that our ways have not worked. That's an easier way of saying it. So are we looking for another way? Are we searching for the answers to this life? Do we want to be deeper people? Is it really just about pursuing the biggest house? Is it really just about, you know, like having the best body? Is it really just about accumulating the most money or all the shallow things that we engage in? Is it really about knowing the most about football Is it really about those things? Or do we want to dig deeper? Do you ask yourself the question, what is my purpose? What am I here for? What is the legacy that I'm leaving? What is the impact that I'm making on humanity? Do we want to be digger, uh, digger? Do we want to be deeper people? Do we want to dig deeper? That's what I was trying to say. Do we want to ask the big questions? How do I connect closer to my creator? What does eternity look like? What is the state of my soul? What is the purpose of my life? Are we digging deeper? Are we looking for the answers? Now, listen, when we look for those answers, whether you're a believer or not a believer watching this right now, when we look, are we looking objectively or are we looking subjectively? Now, if you don't know what those words mean, in very simple terms, If you touch one of these books, this is called the Holy Bible. If you touch one of these books and you open it up and you start to read it, are you you reading this book trying to affirm what you already believe? That's subjective. Or do you open this book believing whatever it says is truth, even if that truth doesn't line up with my lifestyle? So for instance, when we break open the word of God, And it may say things like having sex before marriage is wrong. Do we look at that subjectively and say, well, but I'm I'm, I'm married to him in my heart. It's not what the Bible teaches. But anyways, do do we approach the Bible subjectively and try to warp and twist and turn the Bible to fit my lifestyle that I already believe and live? Or do we objectively go into the truth and say, even if it's uncomfortable for me, Even if it's uncomfortable when Jesus says, I am the way, there is no other way to get to heaven besides believing and following Jesus Christ. Do we go into the word objectively or do we go into the word subjectively? Even if it says uncomfortable things. What it boils down to is this, and guys, I'm not trying to be offensive, but this is what we do. Are we trying to follow and fashion our lives into the image of God? Or are we trying to create a God in our image. I can't tell you how many times over the years I hear people say, well, I don't believe God would do that. I don't believe Jesus would get angry. I don't believe this would happen. I don't believe God would would do that to those people or not accept this practice or do these things. And my response is always, I look at them and say, where do you get that in the Bible? If you call yourself a Christian and you don't believe Jesus would do this or that or that God would do this or that, Show it to me in his word because he's not going to contradict his word. So are we trying to create a Republican Jesus? Are we trying to create a socialist Jesus? Are we trying to create a hippie Jesus? Are we trying to create an ultra-conservative Jesus? Are we trying to create a white Jesus or a black Jesus? What kind of Jesus are we trying to, to manufacture to make us feel better? Or... Do we go into the Bible and discover the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus?
So we ask if our fruit is vindicated. We start to dig and we look for answers. Now listen, here's the last thing, and here's where a lot of us fall off the wagon, is if we hear the answers, if we discover the truth, do we respond to it? In other words, do we live out the gospel we hear? So if you're watching this right now and you're having sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you claim to be a Christian, you've heard from me today and you can research it yourself, that's a sin. And that will put distance between you and God because you're living in rebellion to him. If you have heard that today, if you've heard this truth, will you respond to that truth? Will you make the right decision? If you're lying on your taxes, if you struggle with racism or prejudice, whatever the thing may be, when you find the truth, right? Will you respond to the truth? Will we faithfully respond to it? Will we put into action the things that we hear, the gospel that Jesus teaches? Will we be responsive? Do we understand that ultimately our choices and our actions belong to us? You're not gonna be able to stand before God and say, it's Barack Obama's fault. Donald Trump's fault, it's my dad's fault, it's my neighbor's fault, it's Kyle's fault, someone else's fault, right? Do we know that ultimately our choices and our actions belong to us? Regardless of environment, we will be held responsible for what we do. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, if you're listening to this and you believe in Jesus Christ, we must believe in the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit of God enables us to be more than overcomers of our environment and our circumstances. And if we don't believe that, we don't believe in the biblical Jesus. Ultimately, our choices and actions belong to us. But here's the encouraging part. It is impossible to keep up, guys, if you try to keep up with the value system of the world, it changes every day, right? It is so hypocritical. It is just like Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes when he talks about society and culture and money and fame and all this stuff. Solomon says it's like running after the wind. It goes this way and then that way and this way, and you can't keep up with it. It is impossible to keep up with the changing values of society it is impossible to meet the standards of man-made religion. That's what Jesus was up against in the book of Matthew, the religious people. By the time Jesus came onto the scene, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,600 laws they had to follow. It was impossible. It was too much for the people to bear. It was a yoke that they could not handle. Are we tired of that yet? Are you tired of that yet? Are you tired of trying to constantly have to keep up with the Joneses, to constantly have to keep up with what your neighbor buys or what society tells you makes you happy? Are you worn out yet by trying to get enough thumbs up on your Facebook post or enough hearts on your Instagram? Or are you tired of that yet? Are you tired of the weight of religion that really doesn't give us a relationship with God? Are you tired of that yet? Well, Jesus says, if you are, come to me. Come to me. And Jesus says, I have another way. I have a better way. Is it challenging? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. But you will be fulfilled. You will be joyful. You will be changed from the inside out. You'll have a sense of value. You'll have a sense of purpose. You'll have a sense of meaning. You'll have a destiny. You'll have an eternity. You will get to be with your creator. Jesus says, if the ways of the world are not working, which they're not, Jesus says, come to me. I have a better way. If you're watching this today, maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you haven't been living it. Or maybe you don't call yourself a Christian at all, and you are the one digging for the answers. If you're the one digging for the answers, I'm extremely encouraged by you, even if you don't call yourself a Christian yet. Because I believe that if you objectively look for the truth, you're going to find the truth. But here's the thing. When all of us find the truth, we have to respond to the truth. And we have to make a decision in our mind that the yoke and the burdens and the responsibilities of the world have let us down. They have been too much for us to carry. So we have to decide to go another way. Jesus says, come on, come to me. My way is better. It's better.
whether you're a Christian that has gotten off the path or whether you're a non-believer who is digging for the answers. Is being a Christian easy? Absolutely not. Is it better? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a much better responsibility. Never in my life have I felt value and purpose until I met Jesus Christ. And you can have that too. If you're watching me right now and you have any questions, if you have any prayer requests, if you need us for any reason, send us an email, info at experiencecc.com. If you have prayer requests, anything you may need for us, from us, please get a hold of us. We can meet you. We can get coffee now. There's coffee shops open. You can come by, meet us face to face. If you're watching this right now and you are a believer, you consider yourself a believer, but maybe you have just not responded to the truth the way that you should. Here's the beauty, guys. We have been given not only God's son, but God's son gave for us his life. He died on a cross. His body, which is represented by the communion, was broken and by his stripes were healed. Mentally, sometimes physically, always spiritually, and then in eternity will be perfect, right? That we can be healed. He also shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins so our sins could be forgiven. Let's not be like the people who saw the things of God but did not repent and then Jesus rebukes them. Let's not be that. Right now in this moment, if we call ourselves believers, we have the opportunity to repent for our sins, to take the body and blood of Jesus and make sure that we are square with God that we are in alignment with God, that we have been forgiven and we're living a pleasing life for him. We have also been given his Holy Spirit. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has given his Holy Spirit to us, which enables us to live the kind of lives that he wants us to live. That we don't have to blame our parents. We don't have to blame the government. We don't have to blame our economic situation. We can take on the burden of Jesus Christ and we can live the kind of lives that he wants us to live. Father, Lord, for all of us taking communion today, God, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. We take this bread, God, as a reminder that you were beaten, spat upon, and nailed to a cross, and that by your stripes we are all ultimately healed. Lord, we take this wine as a reminder of your blood that was shed for us, God that covers up our sin, that forgives us, Lord, that cancels our debt, God, that we have accumulated against you. And Lord, because of your death, burial, and resurrection, you've given us your Holy Spirit. That as Ephesians 1.13 says, God, that all that believe in you and call on you are sealed by that Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. And we take this wine as a remembrance of your blood shed for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. We're so, for, so, so uh, looking forward, God, to meeting in person again, God, where we can worship you corporately, Jesus. Father, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for keeping your hand on us. Bless the churches in our community, God. Keep your hand on our governments, Lord. Keep your hand on, on your people, God. Keep your hand on those that are searching and digging, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Can't wait to see you soon. Have a good week.